This is Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 1st of December. Not long till Christmas. Last week I spoke about hydrogen, the lightest, simplest and one of the most common elements in the world, and one that could be vital to our low-carbon future. This week I'm going to talk about copper, another element which will be equally important as we rely less on fossil fuels and more on electricity. Next week, I have an interview with George Monbiot, but more about that later. First, let's talk about copper. Well, my guest today is Fleming Wittmann, who is Vice President of Public Affairs for the International Copper Association. Uh, Welcome, Fleming. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay. Can you start off just by telling the listeners exactly what the International Copper Association is and what its objectives are? Absolutely. So we represent the entire copper industry, that meaning everything from the, the mining of copper to the production of uh, copper products and also the recycling industry, which is which is quite significant. So you can say sort of the, the entire value chain of, of copper. Right. And the, the aim of the industry is, of course, to uh, work on the interest of the industry. So that is both in terms of technology development, market development, but also more and more, you could say, interacting with government in, in, in Washington, in Brussels, in Beijing and other places around policy issues, regulatory issues that would impact the, the, the copper industry. Right, I see, and no doubt uh, promoting the, the sale, development and use of copper. Yeah, and you can say the, the, you could, the big thing for our industry, of course, is sort of that transitioning towards a low-carbon future. Yeah. Uh, and, and for us, you can say one thing is it's the right thing to do, but for us it's also a very, very good business case. So... Uh, Basically, since Thomas Edison and, and, and you know his peers back in the days, 1880s, rolled out the electricity grid, mm-hmm. you know, copper has been very essential to modern life and goes into everything that we would use, whether it's electricity, you know, powering different kind of functions, houses, heating, cooling. But but once you move into a low carbon uh, future, you know, you're actually going to use significantly more copper. So McKinsey estimates about 40% more copper is needed in the low-carbon future. So to, to, to kind of simplify it for, for, for the listeners, one of the reasons is that if you take a combustion engine car and you now go to an electric vehicle, you actually end up using approximately four times more copper. Uh, so of, for obvious reasons, we support that transition into low-carbon, and we also committed to actually help with that transition. Right, okay. Well, there's been a lot in the in the press and the media recently about the electric car. Yeah. Uh, the copper presumably goes into the, the motors, but it also uh, goes into the transmission network because we need all these charging points. And the current absolutely. grid is just not up to that, is it? No, absolutely not. So it's both, you could say, the car itself, uh, you know, the powertrain, the, the, the cables, the wires, and of course it's, it's the charging infrastructure and so on, which is, which is quite essential. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you you also mentioned uh, on your website about um, 
air conditioning. This is copper tubes rather than copper yeah. wires. Yeah. 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 So you can say that, you know, copper is the best conductor of electricity, but it's also the best conductor of, of heating and cooling. So uh, I guess historically a lot of the development in, in, in the world, in, in the United States, in Europe, of course, we, we had quite a lot of, of, of a heating demand, but of course also a lot of air conditioning and, and, and how the world develops with, you could say, hundreds of millions of people that were in poverty in China, Southeast Asia, moving into the middle class, which is a good thing to lift them out of poverty. That's part of the world where in the future you'll see a huge demand for air conditioning, but also refrigeration of food and other essentials. So, so you see good development there, but that also just requires that that you can say some of the things that other people might take for granted, whether it's air conditioning, refrigeration, so on, that, that we talk about maybe close to a billion new people in the middle class who need those things. And that requires, of course, that we provide it to them, but we also need to provide it to them in a sustainable fashion. And they shouldn't make our mistakes. I think that's also a key thing into that sort of, you know, sustainability challenge that we have in front of us. Yeah. An interesting thing is, of course, the other side of it is that if we are actually going to move to electricity for heating, and I think yeah. uh, we possibly probably will, then there may yeah. well be an awful lot of scrap copper pipes coming out. Uh, which yeah. will be recycled because um, I, I, I believe that uh, something between two thirds and three quarters of all copper that's ever been mined is still in use because it's been recycled. That's, so that's how, absolutely does, how, how does your industry actually support and um, encourage recycling? Yeah, so so you could say you have. Uh, you mentioned you know the buildings and stuff like that that hopefully is around for a very very long time. So that might take a long time before it's, it's kind of recycled. And what you're recycling today is maybe installations from the 1950s and the 1960s. So so what's important for us is. You can say that that is actually collected, so it doesn't end, end up in a landfill to begin with. Uh, and then our members, of course, you know, are looking at sort of maximizing getting the most out of that copper, but also trying to eliminate any kind of contaminations that were due to whatever environmental practices we had in the past. You know, lead is one thing, mercury and so on. But then, you know, the, the, the other huge business, of course, is that so one thing is the buildings, and they, they hopefully are around for many hundred years. But the other thing that is huge is, is the electronic waste. So where people today buy an, you know, a phone and, and then all 14 months later they need a new phone or they buy a computer and two, two years later need a new computer. And there we also need to optimize how we collect and recycle all of those materials. And, and a couple of our members in Europe, Boliden in Sweden and Arubis in Germany, they're the world's two largest recyclers of electronic waste. Uh, and we recycle a lot of waste, but there's a lot of waste out there that could be recycled and that, that for sure shouldn't end up in a landfill. And it's actually quite a good business case to recycle that. So, so that's some of the things that we work with the industry, but also work you know, with policymakers, whether that's in Beijing or in Brussels elsewhere, to kind of facilitate that you actually get that recycling going. Right. Now, do you work with people like the um, uh, phone and the computer manufacturers to uh, assist them to design things so they can be more re more easily recycled because that's really one of the foundations of the circular economy. If you can't take it to bits, then you can't recycle it in many cases. No, that that's uh, that's a huge challenge. Um, are we there yet? I think no, we're absolutely not there yet. I still think that there's way 
more room for improvement when it comes to design for recycling, right? And and of course, you can say maybe one of the weak points there is the batteries themselves. Uh, and and so so yes, that's something that we definitely talk with the electronics industry about. That's something that that of course we also talk with the auto manufacturers about that you need to design for recycling. Uh, that would simply make it more environmental friendly and of course hopefully also a better business case that we try and eliminate whatever toxic materials that could be interwined into some of these products so uh, we're doing okay but there's still room for improvement with the sort of design for recycling. yeah yeah now looking at um, the infographic on your website which talks about the circular economy it suggests that a third of global demand is met from recycling. But that yeah. means that two-thirds has to come from a virgin material, if you like. Sure. And some people are already talking about peak copper. In other words, yeah. the fact that as you um, search for more and more, the ores are of lower and lower grade. You have to dig out more and more material. Sure. Um, but global demand is uh, steady, if not increasing. So how are you going to sort that problem? Sure. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there's a couple of, you could say, positive attributes to sort of the, the, the global copper reserves. We we estimate, or rather the, the U.S. Geological Service has estimated this reserves for about 200 years. Uh, and, and you're right that you could say that the, the quality of some of the, the copper oil is, is, is less than it were maybe 50, 100 years ago. But of course, at the same time, the production mechanisms also become more and more efficient. Uh, so it, it becomes complicated. But of course, yes, at the same time, you know, the, the efficiency also goes up. So, so I still think that uh, definitely there's reason to be fairly optimistic that you still have an abundance. In terms of, you could say, because I think that's important in, in addition to that is that you have copper mining literally all over the world in, in, in all of the continents. I think that's, that's, that's equally important. Of course, you need the abundance, mm -hmm. but you also want to avoid any geopolitical risks. And I think that's a huge benefit of copper that, of course, you have Chile yeah. being the world's largest yeah. mining company, other yeah. countries in Latin America. You have copper mining in Europe. You have copper mining in the U.S., in Asia, in Africa. So... So there's an abundance, and, and, and you avoid some of those geopolitical risks to your supply chain. Right, okay. On the website, again, you talk about uh, environmental conditions and concerns. You talk about uh, copper pollution. You talk yeah. about bioavailability, and uh, you admit that in some cases, copper can actually get to a level where it poisons plants and organisms. Sure. But um, equally, I think I'm right that uh, copper is essential as a trace element for some plants to actually yeah. grow. Yeah. I, I think, I know environmentalists listen to this and I know they're going to have questions yeah. and I don't think they're <laughs> so concerned about the, the contamination from copper itself. It's the, the byproducts of the actual uh, refining and extraction and smelting. Um, sure. Now... The trouble is that, of course, this has been going on for hundreds of years. There's a case in point. There's um, um, a refinery in Peru, which you probably know about. It's at La Oroya. It's been there 100 years. It's gone bankrupt yeah. and nobody will touch it because during the 100 years, the contamination is absolutely immense. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm quite sure you do an awful lot these days to prevent that level of contamination in new um, uh, minings. But... Um, there's this legacy problem, and yeah. obviously people are going to be very concerned that uh, extraction 
is is a, is a dirty business. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, a couple of points to that. I think you know, absolutely, there is a legacy of of how were people operating the nineteen twenties and the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties, and and but in all fairness, there's also been huge improvements ever since. And and you know, we we every year do a survey among our members. Uh, and see how much money do they invest in making their operations more sustainable. And that follows simply just, you know, the, the accounting rules set up by, by GRI and others and so on. And it's around $20 billion every year, $20 billion they spend on that. And, of course, a lot of that has to do with environmental regulation, labor safety and so on. So I think $20 billion, is, that's a lot of money that goes into it. Uh, and that's you can say there's a constant improvement of of all of that. Um, some of the factories you go to to Hamburg, you had a Rubis, as I said before, the world's largest recycler of electronic waste. They are in the middle of the Hamburg city. The city, of course, was very different a long time ago. Now, all of a the sudden, they're in the middle of the city. That, of course, means that they every year invest a lot of money in you can say reducing any kind of air pollution, but also noise water, whatever. So I think there's just been a development over the decades of, you know, you start out a business, what then was outside the city, all of a sudden you're in the city and you want to develop with the city, right? And and, and I, I visited a lot of these mines, I visited a lot of the production sites and I'm, I, I'm quite impressed with, with, with what they do. Right? There's still work that needs to be done, absolutely. And, and, and you know, they, they continue, they continue to be very committed to, to doing that. Um, one of the dilemmas, of course, also I think that that will also be, uh, I think, to, to to your listeners, of course, is also that, you know, sometimes you know a lot of our members are some of the big multinational companies that that you maybe years ago a lot of people were slightly unhappy about. But but one of the advantages they have of being the multinationals is that you know they are held accountable in many different jurisdictions across the globe by people like yourself, by the NGOs, and by other people. And that has an enormous advantage because that they, they they need to pay attention, and of course they have you know the leverage of being large scale. So so one improvement they do one mine where in the, where in the world is easier for them to transfer that know how to another mine somewhere else in the world, whether it's air pollution, whether it's water recycling, and so on and so on. So so I think that there's a lot of progress being made out there, and and, and they will continue to do that. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's good news. Um, can we expect the industry or your organisation perhaps to publish a, a sustainability report, an annual report? Yeah, so we, we do that actually already. Um, so we have on what's called sustainablecover.org. We, had, we have what is the equivalent of a sustainability report in there with, with 10 different indicators. And, of course, you know, the... the the, uh, the listeners can go in and, and they can have a look at sustainablecover.org and look at the different indicators. Uh, so we had about, I think, five years now we, we've done the indicators so people can also track progress over time. Uh, the good news is that, for instance, when you come to labor safety, working conditions, there's you see improvement year by year. Water recycling, you see significant improvement on that. Uh, investment in sustainability goes up. Uh, the only weak spot we have, in all fairness, is actually energy and then the carbon emissions. Uh, and that, of course, is something that is what a lot of people say is the most important. And, 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 and that's kind of just in full disclosure, absolutely one of the, 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 the biggest challenges that we have that, that, you know, we are an energy intensive industry. 
And uh, we are very much dependent on the host country, so to say, the regions we're in, what kind of energy mix they have. Because some of the mines might have on-site production, but a lot of them were sourced from the local grid. Right. So there you can say our carbon emissions often is a reflection of whatever decisions the surrounding societies have made. Right, yes, because I imagine you use quite a lot of energy, and while you might be able to put up solar panels and wind turbines, you'd need a lot for the sort of things that you're doing. But Absolutely. what about the water aspect? Because I, I, yeah. from my limited knowledge, uh, water is a major component of the refining process. You actually use sure. electrolysis, don't you? You use sulfuric acid. What happens to the sulfuric yeah. acid afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, the sulfuric acid is, 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 a, is a byproduct that's actually sold today for one of, one of the applications would be for fertilizers. Mm -hmm. uh, the water recycling is in our sustainability indicators and the water recycling goes up year by year. And a lot of the sites have very, very high rates of water recycling. Uh, and again, you know, that's the right thing to do, but it's simply also, it's, it's also a good business case and it's kind of the commitment they have to the local communities because I think uh, a number of, of the big mines are located in areas where, you know, water is a scarce resource. Exactly. Uh, so that also means that if you look at Latin America today, some of the mines are in areas that are basically like in a desert where water is simply scarce. So so water recycling is strategy number one. The second strategy is desalination. Uh, and there, of course, you know, with desalination, uh, which is great, but of course, you know, the, the challenge of desalination is, of course, again, that's also energy intensive. Mm. So that puts more pressure on then, okay, fine, then we need to convert to renewable energy. And we need to be even more innovative in the desalination process, but also how do we handle that? And there, I think, you know, there's opportunities in front of us also to work with the local communities. So farmers that need the water, they might be closer to the ocean, so they might get the desalinated water so they don't have to pump it all the way to the mine. Then the mine use a little bit more of the local water. So I think there's, there's many ways to do that, but... But where, again, the, the, the key word for it is trying to work with the local communities to figure out how, how, how do we do that. Uh, right. But water, is, is, water is, is, uh, is, 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 is really, really important. Yes. So in summary, then, are you confident that the industry is going to be able to meet the challenge of this move to, well, basically to a, a greater usage of uh, electricity? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the... the Again, you know, there is abundance. There is there is copper in many places all over the world. Again, so so you could say some of the issues that you might have on on other materials could be like phosphate or others, where you know the the abundance might be in a few countries. Here we've got we 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 work in, in, in quite a number of countries. I think that that's a huge huge advantage. Uh, there's still also a, a pretty significant untapped potential for for recycling. Um, I mean, we, we see that, of course, with all the electronic waste. So the amount of electronic waste is just going up. Mm. But, of course, there is still also, you know, iPhones and computers that unfortunately end up in a landfill where they shouldn't end up. So, yeah. so let's, start, let's start recycling them. And there, I think, there's a, a number of countries across the globe that can kind of improve on, on actually the collecting of, of all that waste. So, so, so there, there, again, there's an untapped potential in that right. and, and actually a pretty good business case for that. Right. But all in all, you're, you're optimistic about the future. I'm, I'm super optimistic on it because I think, again, you know, the world is going to need copper. And, and, and you can say my members are very committed to providing it, but also providing it in, in a sustainable fashion. And again, you know, that also comes, I think, from, from I think a very good 
relationship with, with the NGOs and with a lot of the environmentalists is that, you know, we want electric vehicles, we want wind and solar energy, but we only want it if it's produced sustainable. So, so we have a good alignment of our interest here, right? That we want to facilitate that low carbon transition, but we also know that we need to deliver on the sustainability all the way back to the mine sites. Fleming, that's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for your time. I'm sure it'll lead to, uh, I hope it'll lead to some responses and questions when we broadcast this, but uh, that's great. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was Fleming Voopman, who is Vice President of Public Affairs for the International Copper Association. You can find out more at sustainablecopper.org. And those recycling companies he mentioned are Aurubis in Germany, which is A-U-R-U-B-I-S dot com, and Boliden in Sweden, which is B-O-L-I-D-E-N dot com. Next week, as I mentioned at the start, we have an interview with George Monbiot. He's an author and campaigner on environmental sustainability and political issues. He's written eight books and there's a new one just out and he's a regular columnist for the Guardian newspaper. That's next week, Friday the 8th of December. For now, that's all from the Sustainable Futures Report. If you like what I do, please don't forget patreon.com slash s-f-r-p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-f-r and don't forget to listen next week. I'm Anthony Day. Bye for now. Thank you.